This is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancasino. And I'm Amit Prakash. Today we have on the founder and one of the leaders of Operation Restoration, whose mission is to help women and girls affected by incarceration. They're doing amazing work down in your neck of the woods in New Orleans. So I know they I are. Can't, I can't wait to hear them. And we're going to talk politics with them, too. Let's go. We will. We will. Okay, uh, thank you both so much for coming here um, and coming on the show. So for our listeners, today we have uh, two representatives, a founder and um, a leader within the organization of Operation Restoration. Um, and within that, you, if you, some, a lot of our listeners have already bought t-shirts, so they know 50% of, of, of those uh, profits are, are going to Operation Restoration. Um, and so we've got um, Sarita Steeb, um, and and or am I pronouncing your last name right? Is that right? Steeb. Steeb. Sorry, Sarita. Sarita. Could have gone one of two uh, ways. I know. I could have gone way. both. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, it's going to be one or the other. All right. Uh, and I then can see it, but you know, that's German. You yes. Know, right. Country, you know, you can, yeah. You can yeah. Have. I know. I mean, I assumed. <laughs> I thought there might be a Vaughn in between or something. Um, uh, and then we've got Montreal Carmouche. Um, who is uh, leading up within Operation Restoration, the New Orleans Freedom and Safety Fund. Um, So what I wanted to just start with, if you could, uh, Sarita, if we could start with you, if you could just talk a little bit about your background and then how you came to found this organization and and what what its aims are. Yes. So um, at the age of 19, I was sentenced to 120 months in federal prison, 20 years in state prison and $1.9 million in restitution. Oh, my God. All for the same um, incident. And so that began my involvement in the criminal legal system. Um, Prior to that, I had family members who were involved in law enforcement. My mom was a judge at the time that I went to prison. So I had experience on one side. But at the age of 19, I found myself incarcerated. Um, I did nine years and two months of a 10-year sentence, and I was released back to New Orleans uh, post-Katrina where there weren't any resources um, available specifically for women. So um, when I got out, I didn't have help with, you know, finding clothing and accessing job opportunities, getting my birth certificate, just things of the sort. I was at a halfway house where they would come in and see the 80 men that were there, but wouldn't even acknowledge the seven or eight women that were there. And um, it was a really hard process. And had it not been for other formerly incarcerated women reaching out and reaching back and saying, (laughs) hey, I'll take you to get your birth certificate. I'll help you get into school or just things of the sort. I don't know what my reentry, you know, would have looked like. Mm -hmm. Um, In 2009, when I was released, I applied to go to the University of New Orleans because I had taken some college courses while I was incarcerated. And I was denied entrance into the um, university due to my criminal conviction. Um, at the time, I didn't know that that's what it was because they couldn't say it on paper. But I knew that that, w- that is what it was because I had 30 hours of college credits and I had a 3.8 GPA. Um, but I didn't get in. So two years later, I decided to reapply and I just unchecked the box. I used the same application and I got in and I got scholarships and but then I had this thing hanging over my head. So I had to, you know, come out in a sense and say, hey, you know, I lied on my application. And uh, one of my professors, I was tutoring chemistry for him at the time. He was like, oh, well, you're not like everybody else. Basically, we'll figure this out. 
And um, it didn't sit well with me. So um, in 2016, after I graduated college um, from LSU Health and Science Center in 2014, I got a degree in clinical laboratory science. And I um, just was like, I have to do something. I have to give back. I have to figure this out. And um, we did the organization, founded the organization in 2016 to focus on helping women access higher education and re-enter and help them with things like hygiene and clothing and just things of the sort. Um, in 2017, we were able to pass the legislation to uh, remove the questions around criminal history off of college applications, making Louisiana the first state um, to do so. And we are up to five states now that we've successfully passed that uh, legislation in. But what we found is that if people want to get an education, there are so many other things in the way, like lack of housing, you know, you can't right. bind yourself out during pretrial, you know, just right. a myriad of other things. So from 2016 to present day, we have about 15 programs um, that we run in-house. We have a full-time staff of 16 women and about 20 contractors and about 80% of the staff overall is formerly incarcerated. So um, that's a little bit how, about how we started, why we started and okay. where we are now. Great. Thank you so much. Um, I mean, I was looking up some stuff about Louisiana today. And so I think many people know that the United States is the most incarcerated country uh, in the world per capita. And then Louisiana is the most incarcerated state per capita within the most incarcerated country, um, which is outrageous. Um, but but um, just, one just of the things that this is more than Saudi Arabia, this is more this, than China, this, yeah. India, Brazil, you name it, countries the, bigger the than us. The second to us, it's like the superpower race. The second to us is Russia. Um, the and which is and, shocking. You would think yeah. more people would be locked up there. Yeah, no, with what we're no. fed, and even the Chinese have 1.7 million people locked up. We have 2.1 and they have a much larger population. So, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty, um, extraordinary. The, and I noticed that you called it the sort of criminal legal system, not the criminal justice system, because I don't know how much element of justice is involved <laughs> no in this. <laughs> right, right, up, right, wow. right. Um, yeah. so one of the things I wanted to ask you, so I was reading about the organization and um, particularly the bail fund and the New Orleans uh, parish DA is quite critical about this, right? That a dangerous development was a quote that I saw. Um, and what is your response to that, you know, to that approach? And I don't know if you want to take this or, or if Montreal wants to jump in. I thought it was no in, politics but, at the dinner but... table. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was no politics. She said it was no politics at the dinner table. I right. was about to say, well, he's not even running, so who are you talking about? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, well, it's all it's all politics based. It's all yeah, based. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so let let's get uh, Montreal in here really real quickly. Um, Montreal, could you also give just a little bit of background about yourself and then how you got involved with Operation Restoration? Yeah, um, I'm too informally incarcerated. I did a combined 19 years, eight months, and seven days in federal prison. Um, that is actually where Sarita and I met. Um, I was released to the federal halfway house December 8th of 2018. About 10 days later, Sarita and another friend of ours, uh, 
the director of housing, Dolphinette, showed up at the halfway house to visit me and, you know, provide me with support and see what I needed because I was just coming home. Um, I like to say all the time they picked me up and never dropped me back off. I started to volunteer at um, Operation Restoration, and then shortly afterwards I was hired as a mentor coordinator. Um, I would go to the Youth Study Center, a juvenile facility here in New Orleans, and mentor the little girls that were struggling with LGBTQT crisis and coming out and also being in a justice system mm -hmm. um, because I knew what that felt like. That's where it started for me. Um, shortly after that, I was introduced to Jim Mayberry through Sarita. I started to do contract work with the Safety and Freedom Fund. At the time, it was the New Orleans Safety and Freedom Fund. I was acting as a bail disruptor on the weekends and in the evenings when I was done with my work at Aurora. Um, the more I got involved in the fund and the more I learned, the more I wanted to know and the more I felt like I needed to do. I did not realize when I first started doing the contract work, it was just a job. I didn't even realize in the moment because I was so sleep to what was going on that I was impacted by the money bail system in New Orleans. I was one of those people that couldn't afford bail and had to end up paying with my life because I couldn't pay with cash. So once I started to realize that how personal it was to me and how it was affecting my neighbors and seeing really what was going on and running across buying referrals for folks that couldn't get out of jail for something as simple as $1, um, it started to become like a life mission for me to be a part of ending money bail in New Orleans and try to just be on the right side of history. Right. Well, um, that's awesome. Totally just, uh, it's amazing work that you're both doing. Um, I, I have one question about um, COVID and the bail system. Um, has there been any kind of um, accommodation with regard to people who are who can't afford bail given that there's a global pandemic going on and are they releasing people um, at, at a greater clip or or is it still pretty um, aggressive in in New Orleans and no nobody cares yeah, the arrests have definitely not went down. The um, arrests actually are at the same pace, if not greater. Um, we have been working closely with the Arlene's Parish Public Defender's Office and some of the um, commissioners to try to look at cases where people could get ROR or not, and that we have made some headway there. But for the most part, we've just been bonding folks out at a rate higher than we ever um, have before. Um, and I mean, the community is just exacerbated anyway. You know, we have other programs within the community that we have responded to based on COVID, but which has been great is, how many people have y'all bonded out since COVID started? Over 200. The jail population is as low as we've been since 1990. Okay. But we've been able to bring those folks in and also yeah. provide them with resources. Right. right? So we have um, really helped over 600 women since March and we have put in over a half a million dollars of actual liquid capital into the community um, so people can do what it is that they need to do, whether they're unemployed, they're underemployed, um, giving them access to uh, gift cards so they can go and get PPE that they need, you know, just different things. Um, we've done that since the start of the pandemic. So basically you're saying, but for your intervention, the jails would still be much fuller. 
right? I mean, that's, that's, oh, definitely. yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Okay. Definitely. Wow. All right. Tony, you want to jump in here? I yeah. got a lot of questions. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's start with, um, how are you funded? So right now we have a large amount of funding that comes through philanthropy um, for the organization as a whole. We are trying to employ different techniques that we aren't so philanthropy dependent. Um, but the great thing about the Safety and Freedom Fund is that they have had 6,000 donors oh, that's over um, the existence in the period. And with the protests and things that have happened across the country lately, as well as the pandemic, we have really got a, a large influx of donations um, to the Safety and Freedom Fund. We're also connected to the National Bill Network. Right. So funding comes from there. And we're also in partnership with the um, Bill Project, the National Bill Project as well. So we get support from other national bill groups as well as donations and philanthropy. Great. Um, next question. What is it about Louisiana? Uh, by the way, I just moved here in October. I live in New Orleans now. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm born in Philly, grew up Philly, Jersey, spent the last, you know, 15 plus years in New York and and I moved here in October. So, I'm I'm now a um registered voter of Louisiana. Oh, so you and we'll be progressive voting by the way. <laughs> um what's going on down here? What what is it about Louisiana? I mean, you know, I've traveled to lots of states. I'm I'm, I'm a television producer. I've done you know, productions in multiple states. And there's places I've been that I felt way more unsafe than here. I'm not going to name them, but plenty of places. What's going on here um, with the citizens predominantly of color and the police force here that is causing the numbers um, of convicted people here? Poverty. You know, that's an easy question. So. <laughs> Oh, I have some thoughts, but I'm gonna let my trial go first. Then I'll please, go. Out. Please. <laughs> um, I feel like what's really going on here is people are poor. Mm -hmm. So because they're poor, everything is so disproportionate. Um, and people are being penalized for being poor, right? New Orleans is like New Orleans is like I guess it's safe to compare it to like um one big family, right? Mm -hmm. New Orleanians take care of New Orleanians, right? But most of the people here that are not New Orleanians, those are the people that don't come to the rescue to help. Like people move in and they take over and they bring their agenda to New Orleans. And then the people that are really from New Orleans, they suffer from this, right? So like when gentrification started, and they came and they started taking over all the neighborhoods and moving in. It didn't change for us, like with being able to have resources and have a way out. We still, you brought all of these jobs here and you brought all these different people in the communities, but you didn't give us the same access that they got. We didn't get the same accomplishments. Like, you know, I go to college and I got a degree, but it still may not be able to get a job if I don't know somebody. It's pretty much in all and who you know. So I think for New Orleans, that's the way it works. Like if you don't know somebody or if you're not connected in some kind of way, it's not fair here. You don't just get to go to court with your public defender and get a bond set based on the fact that you don't have money or you have inability to pay. They'll set your bond lower than mine because you're white and you have a paid attorney 
and I'll get a bond set. And I've shown that I don't have the ability to pay. I'm homeless. I got a public defender. And you'll still give me a $10,000 bond because it's designed to do just that. You don't want me to get out because if you did, you could just ROR me like you just did the rich man that really did have the ability to pay. So I think that's where the incarceration rate comes in New Orleans because people end up just pleading guilty and then the convictions pile up. And before you know it, you got mass incarceration going on all because people didn't really have a chance from the beginning. I think for me, um, on a bigger picture for the state of Louisiana as a whole, I grew up in a small town called Vashry in St. James Parish, which is a rural area as well. Um, and I came to New Orleans when I was 18, right before I went to prison, I was going to school here. I think for me, it's also like seeped in historical and history and just, you know, the end of slavery. And if the 13th Amendment was created to end slavery, but the one loophole is that slavery is still legal when it relates to incarceration, that the police are really just still around and created here in the South and in the state of Louisiana to continue slavery. So you need slaves in the system to be able to do what it is that you want to do. I mean, um, prisoners in the state of Louisiana work on highways. Prisoners in the state of Louisiana grow fruit. They are responsible for the rodeos in Angola. It's just so much prison labor it takes to make the state run. I mean, if you go to the legislature, there are prisoners that are working there in the governor's mansion. There are prisoners that work there at all of the oh department God. headquarters. There are prisoners that work there. So for me, it's about still reinventing the practice of slavery um, and making it modern day, you know, late, you know, free labor. And they're calling it prison labor. But if slavery is legal in the 13th Amendment when you're incarcerated, then that is what is happening here. Um, I think until we really address, you know, racial inequities and how Black folks, even though in this state we are a minority, but we are disproportionately incarcerated and why that is, you know, um, you know, you just have to have those real and hard conversations about what is really going on and why it's still um, existing. And it's existing because it's beneficial, you know, um, it saves the state money. Um, and just all of these things that you don't have to hire people to do and pay them to do. So for me, um, I think it makes financial sense for the state of Louisiana to continue to incarcerate people the way that they do. That's why they fight tooth and nail to do it. But when we pass the criminal justice reform here in um, the justice reinvestment reform that they passed in 2017 here, um, you know, what they did was they transferred it over to now Louisiana is the second largest state behind Texas that holds ICE detainees. So it went from one extreme to the next, you know, um, and it's all about fiscal security for the same folks that it has been traditionally in this state for hundreds of years. Um, that's a really good segue to my next question. Let's you know, we tricked you with the name of our podcast, but we do talk a lot about politics. Um, <laughs> let's talk about the election. Let's talk about the Democrats, the Republicans, the way Louisiana typically votes. Um, let's start with what are you expecting out of this election this year? Do you think Trump's going to win? Do you think Biden's going to win? And then I have a follow up question. So I don't expect anything. 
Um, because I don't really see the difference from going from one older white male to the next mm-hmm. um, to lead the country. Mm-hmm. I am in by no way, shape or form in denial about who Camilla Harris has traditionally been to the country and to the state of California, um, that she was able to cut the deficit in California based on prison labor, um, that she was actually in office for the Fruitvale Station murders and decided not to prosecute the police officers. And while I think that a change is needed, um, I don't know if that's necessarily the change that people think it's going to be or it wants to be. Um, And I'm also very aware of Joe Biden's history um, as it relates to what criminal justice policy reforms that he enacted or the tough on crime stance that him and Camilla both have had in the past. So um, I know my opinion may not be popular, um, but I mean, I have issues with how President Obama's campaign or, you know, time in office was things that I felt like he could have done that he should have done better. And I think that you can have that conversation around anybody in office. You know, um, but I actually think your opinion, I actually think your opinion is popular. It's just not what's (laughs) covered in the media. I think you're on with two people that share the exact same opinion you are saying. I think most people that listen to our podcast share the exact opinion. Um, And I I asked that question because... (sighs) We are in a time right now where you would think the DNC and the people that are supposed to represent um, the commoner, the, the 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 underdog, you would think they would step up this time. And um, I asked that question because I was actually just curious. So Amit and I are super, you know, we, we don't have high hopes for the, D- the, the Democrats. We are constantly disappointed. Um, and I, I am just, uh, hearing it from you two who have kind of, you know, had it much harder than us. It actually just reinforces my opinion, which is, is it's scary to think that, you know, the four of us here are all from different backgrounds. We all grew up differently. Some of us have had it way harder than the other, and we're all feeling that, but where the hell is that out there in the world? We don't ever hear, where's that voice? You know, where, where, do they expect the four of us to get pumped to go vote? Like, do you think your life is going to be that much worse? And I'm asking this, if Trump wins another four years or Biden, how does that affect you two and your organization? Jesus. I know, <laughs> but it's important because I'm, 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 I'm asking for a reason. Um, I, I have a theory. I think that local hear... politics always plays a bigger role in the community's life than state. Uh, I mean, federal politics, right. um, even though laws have to change on both levels. So um, am I going to vote? Of course, I'm going to vote. Of course. And is there a change that needs to ha- happen? Absolutely. Of course. Um, so let's just ground it in that. But I think that I am more concerned about local politics. So the DAs here in Louisiana yield a tremendous amount of power. Um, I am looking at those races. I'm looking at some races here as it relates to juvenile court, because in New Orleans, a lot of the juveniles are um, unfairly targeted around the crimes that are happening here. Um, I think that for me, that my time and my energy is spent on local politics, um, because I think that that is where we have the most ability to effectuate some type of change. Like um, there are three DA candidates, you know, up for office this session. We have really great relationships with our three candidates, right? Um, So for us, it's like, we're excited that there's a change coming, you know? 
and all of those candidates have issues that we don't agree with, but it's like, okay, it's still better than what we had. So I think for me, my focus and my energy is definitely on local um, and statewide politics more so than on the presidential election, because irrespective of who's in office there, um, I think that the most effect that I have in my life is through local politics currently. And people don't think that. They don't realize that those all those elections throughout the year that aren't the big one, that's actually going to affect you way more where you live than the two idiots running for president. I mean, I, you know, obviously, yes, I'm going to I'm going to show up and vote. I'm going to I'm going to very much uh, enthusiastically vote for Biden, even though he was my fourth choice. Um, but you're right. And, and, and if people could get into that mindset where your vote really does matter, especially in local politics, that is what affects you. Um, that's the message that needs to get out there. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I hate to cut this short, but we, we've got to go. Um, but I think that's like one of the smartest things we've heard said on our podcast, yeah. <laughs> which, which is that if you want to affect power, mm-hmm. right, there's that great line from, 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 from Frederick Douglass, right? Power concedes nothing without a demand. You demand it from your local officials, right? And change them. Right. DAs. Yeah. They're all going to have problems. Guess what? They're DAs. <laughs> right? like they, their job is to locking up people. It's not the greatest job. Um, but, um, I, I, I can't say uh, enough about the work uh, you guys are doing down there. It's unbelievable. Um, and I wish you all the best. And to our listeners, if you haven't bought a T-shirt yet, you must. And, <laughs> and even better than that, uh, go directly to uh, Operation Restoration um, and you can give them a direct donation as well. So um, Sarita and Montreal, thank you so much for coming on with us. Um, and we are going to keep in touch and hopefully, um, maybe when this pandemic goes away, we can reconnect and see what other great work you've done. Yes. And Tony, since you're here, we definitely have to link up in real life. So I'm in. Check us out. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm going to do it right here on, on the podcast. Uh, you guys got me. So All right. let's, let's get on the, I'll have Amba put us an email and let's yep. figure out a way to work together. But you know, if we pull our resources, you know, I, I do a lot with video and, and, social campaigns, but, you know, let's please talk offline and, and figure out how I can help. I mean, I, I did, I'm not one of those people that moved here to take, I, I would like to give back. So you guys can hold, you guys can hold me to it. I won't let you down. You can hold me to it. I promise you, I will not let you down. I will, I will, I'll step up. Great talking to you too. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
Well, that was amazing. They are. Uh, I wish. We, we, by the way, we will make good on that one. I will. I will. Yeah, I'll connect. I'm going to connect you guys, and I'm sure good things will happen. Yeah, and and also we will have them back on. I mean, yeah. right that that is right there. You know, it's so easy for people in New York and people with all these with good jobs and these nice communities to talk about oh, Trump. It's the end of the world. Trump wins again. Then you actually hear these women who are like grassroots, boots on the ground, helping the people that are completely affected by shitty policy and they are so unenthusiastic about either one of these candidates and it just it's the problem with um politics is that like it's all just so like trump or if it's not trump it's it's gonna be great and it's like maybe for you but a lot of these people we have trump for a reason Right. And that's what no one ever wants to remember. Trump didn't just come out of nowhere. These are people who have been affected from Democrat and Republican administrations over the course of their lifetime who are so disconnected from their broken promises of these people that like, come on, this is why Trump's polling at almost 50 percent right now, because it's all no one really has any faith that the the Democrats are actually going to do anything. So. Listen to this, like re-listen to this thing. This, this is right. That's all you need to know is right there. Yeah, I, I, I I'm, I'm going to second all that. Um, Trump is. I mean, this is the thing where I, you know, yes, there's multiple. You know, nothing is monocausal in life, right? There's multiple causes. There's lots of causes for Trump's election. Yes, Russia may have had some, you know, participation and try to massage some outcomes. But Trump is an utterly American phenomenon. The idea that he's some sort of outlier um, is actually false, right? It's mm-hmm. it's he's he's purely American, and it's a certain brand of Americanism that he's that he's selling and trying to jam down everybody's throats. And so, you know, your point about basically, you know, liberal elites, right? That that they can't stand Trump because it hurts their moral sensibility, but it doesn't really hurt their material life that much. These are people whose material life has been assaulted by government policy for decades. Didn't start with Trump. It's been for decades. And so I understand that to be completely disillusioned and alienated and like, oh, yeah, okay, great. Then we're going to get Joe Biden, you know, the writer of the crime bill. These are women who are working with uh, who have been incarcerated themselves and are working with people affected by incarceration. So the great prize for this election is Joe Biden. So I can understand, like, yeah, not being really, really excited about that. So let's with that, I think we should move to um, party favors. So let's do it. Um, Let's go. I'll go first. Let's start with the Dems. Okay, good. Because if you are, you know, I'm I'm ranting because I'm pissed off when I hear people like that. Their opinion is so much more important to me than anybody that I'm friends with. Anybody that's like everyone that voted for Trump's a racist white person. Like, I don't want to hear it. And if you disagree with me, shoot us an email. And let's come get smoked on the podcast because we'll tear you to shreds, brother. <laughs> it's my Hulk Hogan experience. My Hulk Hogan impression. Um, we will tear you up because you just heard two women who were incarcerated, probably from bullshit, who, are unex- who aren't that enthusiastic about Biden. They're going to vote for him reluctantly. Um, so that brings me to my point. You know, I did call probably slightly prematurely. I think Biden's going to win. Um, that was before the <laughs> the RNC, which did you watch it? 
you know, the funny thing is, like, I didn't really watch it. And last last time around, four years ago, I watched it for four days, and it was mm. just, mm. I couldn't believe how crazy it was. Yeah. Um, this was so crazy, I had to turn it off. But the moment I, I turned it on for five minutes, and you know what I caught? What? Kimberly Guilfoyle. Mm-hmm. I literally turned it on for yeah. that, and I was like, wow, this is crazier Nuts. than I expected. So I turned it off. Well, I watch a lot of it, and specifically I watch Trump, which I thought was the one thing people need to pay attention to right and what what i came out of that thinking was he's as crazy and 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 uh, he's as much of a pathological liar as we all think but if you think he's dumb you got another thing coming to you if you don't think this guy knows how to spin and to take anything and turn it into a um an asset for his campaign, you are the problem. He is taking these protests, these cities, the looting, the fires, the people getting shot, and he is completely driving home that this is going to get worse under an, an, a, a Democratic um, 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 uh, administration, administration. Yeah. and that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are the radical left who are pushing this. And when you see the images and you and you understand that there's plenty of people that are ignorant and afraid, it's a very effective um, message. And it's what he works. This is his comfort zone is chaos. And there's a lot of chaos right now. And my God, only Trump can use what's going on right now as a complete asset for his campaign. And it's frightening to me because I'm now not quite as confident that he's going to lose. After so, that speech. okay. So this is not so much a party. No, favor. it is. I'm going to get to that. Okay. Okay. Go Sorry. ahead. Go ahead. I'm ranting because I'm pissed. Okay. Um, my party favor is it's time to get grandpa out of the basement. Okay. <laughs> it's time. It has worked, but guess what? The numbers are close. The gap is closing right now. If you look at any poll out there, it is closing from a month ago. It worked to a point, but this is this is the DNC to a T. This is what they do. They stick with a dumb thing that they think is going to work, and it backfires. They did it with Hillary. They're doing it again. It's not, it worked. It's not working anymore. You need to either get grandpa to Wisconsin, to Michigan, to Pennsylvania. You need to get him on a socially distant pedestal or, or a place where you can make a stupid speech at a shopping mall or in a parking lot and have 20 people there, but it gets televised by everybody. But I haven't seen him. I have not seen Biden. I have not seen an Instagram clip. I haven't seen shit other than the same background in the same basement um, since the DNC. And that goes for Kamala Harris. If you're too afraid that grandpa's going to get COVID and die, which I get, he's old. Um, and maybe that he's a little senile, which we all think. We're all going in this just pretending. And that's fine. I'll pretend with you. But Kamala Harris was polling at 2% during the DNC. Joe Biden was pulling at nothing. Bernie was running away with this thing. Pete Buttigieg was running away with this thing. And the DNC decided that it was a good idea to once again get in the way of democracy. And they did it with Hillary. They, no one here, whatever, even people I know that worked on that campaign, everybody knows the DNC got involved to help Hillary. That's getting in the way of democracy. They did it again when Bernie was running away with this thing. They literally got in the way of how democracy is supposed to work, which is fair, which is there's these candidates, stay out of it, let the people 
have their their leader they got involved pulled people out got in the way of democracy and my fear now is they're not learning and exactly what happened last time is going to happen again they got their way with biden and kamala but where are they send send kamala i, I look i think kamala's tough i'm not i wouldn't want to debate her but can we get her in wisconsin she's not she's not at risk can we get her on the ground can we get her marching can we just see her somewhere I don't know. It just reminds me of Hillary with Wisconsin and Michigan. Oh, are we doing it again? Come on, guys. Okay. This is stupid. Yeah. 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 So just, just some more FaceTime and presence. Go there. Yeah. There's three yeah. swing states you need to win out of five. Go to three of them. Go yeah. to five of them. But yeah. my God, if yeah. you think this is yours and you can sit in a basement and just release stupid Instagram videos, this... now, now I think he's going to lose. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I'm still sort of ambivalent about this i never thought the thing is like i think biden is such a weak candidate that that i and trump for the right is a strong candidate um because he says everything they wish they could say i think what the problem is is that the dems they are approaching this like they did like like you said last time which is coasting to victory and you can only coast downwards as we know right that's physics and so it's it's a problem right and and then the physics applies in politics as well so i i would i would say that one thing that they're doing is that they've made a strategic decision based on a much larger strategic error uh and i depart from you a little bit i don't think that the dnc um, completely corrupted democracy this time around. I think, you know, there was some, maybe some coordination amongst the candidates hoping, hoping for uh, cabinet positions and stuff like that. But I don't think that the, the actual process was as marred as it was in 2016. But that's, that's like a side point. But I, I would just say that the, the, the problem is, is that they all decided to rally around this on Joe Biden. That was a very large strategic error, an unforced error that they decided to do. Um, and now they have to double down on that error. And by double downing, it means we got to keep him in the basement because we don't know what's going to come out of his mouth. Right. Um, and if he can even read the teleprompter and, you know, and there's there's all. And, and on the one hand, Trump has let has set the you know, the bar so low for Joe Biden. So if he comes out and he can read and he's not like drooling in a soup, he's like, oh, he's great. You know, you gave a really forceful speech. But I don't think if he goes out a lot, it's going to be, <laughs> it might be uh, suicide for them. You know, it, it might really be, be damaging. But I completely agree in terms of not Biden, maybe not even Harris, but certainly their proxies like who oh, are their how about proxies? this how about this we don't even know you know we don't even know who is representing who's, who's, who's pulling for them call bernie call aoc make some promises and guess what guess who will rally guess who will march yeah i promise you the pro progressives look. will be out there uh and, and just look what they did in new york look what she did smoked the the the, the people running against her I will say the last email I got from the Bernie campaign was titled yeah. Joe Biden, and it was all about why you need to to vote for Joe not Biden. enough. So, I get them you know, too. The, I don't read them anymore. You no, know, but I'm I'm saying, but like yes. we, they need to have more people. You know, they have to have more spokespeople it's because they're not doing it themselves. Um, so I I totally agree with you. the The Democratic message 
is just not Trump, mm-hmm. and that's not enough. No. So, yes, I think we're kind of in agreement here. All right, so for, for, for the GOP, I'll, I'll, I'll go first. Um, so the GOP um, seems like they've, they they may have listened 100%. to our last podcast because they're they're, they are they're du- they're doubling down on all of their no terrible qualities, right? That the imagine when he wins again, he goes, the, the, "Yo, I listened to this nobody podcast." And I gotta tell you, right. these guys are brilliant. Yeah, Everybody these blames guys us are like real they like they blamed Bernie uh, last time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're obviously Russian agents. Um, so. I think they're doing it, right? So they just need to keep on keeping on. And this is my, the big worry that I had when I'm very excited about the protest movement and I think it should continue. I think it should get even bigger. Um, I, But my worry, of course, is the backlash and it has always been that. Not only for them, you know, they're locking up people left and right for on terrorism charges for like breaking fire hydrants and stuff. Um, but also the general political backlash that's coming uh, into formation that could be insurmountable in terms of, you know, electoral politics. I don't know. Um, so I actually think the Republicans, the GOP mm-hmm. are doing what they need to do, right? They're talking about law and order. They're using sometimes coded language. Sometimes they're using openly explicit racist, racist language. And it's appealing to... Uh, a wide swath of the electorate because the open racists love it and then the people who have those sentiments but they don't want to speak it out loud they are they're getting it in code so it it covers all of them um so yeah they're they're doing it yeah it's kind of tough because who are we to actually tell them anything they're they're starting to gain momentum in the polls um they're kind of doing what we've been saying they should do which is just us predicting what we think they would do so (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I, um, I actually still think what they need to do is if I were Trump, I would start getting that message back that he's an outsider. Still, I would turn on somebody, whether it's a Rubio or a crew, I would start a battle within the Republicans to distract, um, y- you know, the thing, the reason why he won last time was that we we not we we didn't vote for him but people that voted for him really felt like he's not one of these republicans he's his own guy and my fear not fear it's a hope actually is that people start realizing he's just a shitty politician and he's a scumbag um if he wants to try to close that gap a little more he's got to do something unpredictable whether that's meeting with black lives matter whether that's marching you know risking his life whatever it is um I think for him to really hit a home run and he just you know skateboards back into the White House is he has to kind of do something we can't predict where we go, oh my God, that was brilliant. Um, that's what he's good at and he hasn't done it yet. We're predicting everything he's gonna do. I don't know that that's gonna get him back in the White House. I'm waiting for a, a, um, a war within the party. I'm waiting for something, uh, a pardon, like a Snowden pardon, something that's just like, damn, this guy now could say, I told you I'm not like everybody else. I'm my own guy. I think for myself. Mm-hmm. I don't think with the party, and that's why I'm your guy. Um, I'm waiting for that moment, and he's got another month to do it. I, I think he'll do it. He's going to do something. Um, keep your keep your eyes open for that. Okay. Okay. 
All right. Well, we will we will um, definitely keep in touch yeah. um, with the Operation Restoration. With Operation and Restoration. And I'm so grateful they came on. And yeah. look, guys, buy a T-shirt. They're actually really comfortable. Yeah, you don't have to listen to us now. You yeah, can listen to Sarita in Montreal. Give it away as a gift. Like it's not. We're not making any money. We're trying to help people out because we're not going to donate just to donate. So we're going to give you a, like a, a friggin' gift, and then you get to feel good about it. Um, but do it. I mean, in all seriousness, and and donate. This this these are the people who are doing the hard work. None of you are doing. I guarantee it, and including myself. I'm not doing the hard work. So the least we could do is you know we're not going to the bar anymore. We're not going to restaurants. Give them a bar tap. Great. Right. Well, we'll see you guys next week. No Politics at the Dinner Table is produced by our very own Avram Prakash. And um, we'll see you next week. Well, what? We always say see you next week. week. We'll, we'll talk to you next week. See, it just sounds good. Yeah. Uh, I like see you. I like see you. All right.